Hello, everyone, and welcome to Side Dish, an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in a rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Now, we know that from historical research that dogs became domesticated around 16,000 years ago. However, the commercial pet food industry really only began around 1860 when businessman James Spratt introduced the first commercially prepared pet food in England after watching dogs being fed old ship's biscuits at the docks. Spratt formulated the first dog biscuit, which was a mix of wheat meals and vegetables and beetroot and and I think it was beef blood. Spratt's business venture was successful as he targeted the English gentlemen and their sporting dogs. Now, if we roll the clock forward to current times, the global pet food market is now worth well over $90 billion in annual sales and growing at at around 4.5% annually. And with the big increase that we all saw in pet ownership across the pandemic, pet food is a market that's set for even more growth. So at the very heart of this pet food industry are a wide range of food sciences. And it's science that enables the products to be convenient for us, the pet owner, and also enables the food to be healthy and tasty for our pets. And this is a fact that I'm sure would surprise many people. Today, we're joined by three great scientists. Phoebe Kwan, food scientist and pet food innovation specialist. Leah Lambrakis, Vice President of Research and Development, Nutrition and Scientific Affairs for Simmons Pet Food. And Dr. Brittany White, Director of Product Development for Simmons Pet Food. Welcome to the show, Phoebe, Leah and Brittany. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having us. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, but uh, can we start by asking each of you to tell us a little bit about your background so you know our listeners can understand who we're actually talking to today? So Phoebe, how about you lead us off? Tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into pet food. Yeah, thank you, Bruce, for hosting the podcast again. So my name is Phoebe, Phoebe Chen, and I've been in the pet food industry for about eight years now. My background is in food science, uh, both my I got my uh, undergrad in food science from Iowa State and uh, my master's from K-State. So uh, go Cyclone and go Wildcat. (laughs) So basically stepping into the pet food industry was an accident really, Uh, but I love it ever since. And I have just been staying here and not planning to leave. Um, I'm more specialized in palatability research in the past and also specialty uh, product development, such as like treats, and then some novelty ingredient, fresh um, and uh, canned products. Most recently, I have been running my own technical consulting towards the pet food industry, starting from startup all the way to mature business and providing daily service on technical related questions. Excellent. And, and Brittany, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into pet food? Sure. Uh, so I've also been in the pet food industry for uh, just about eight years. I studied food science as an undergraduate at the University of Arkansas. I actually did an internship with Simmons Pet Food at a wet pet food plant the summer after my junior year. And I actually left that internship and, and the committee asked me, so what did you learn from the internship? And I said, I learned that I never want to work in pet food ever again. <laughs> <laughs> just, raw meat made me pretty squeamish at the time. And our pet food plant was... Uh, 
situated directly to our poultry processing plant. And so we actually had fresh offal coming from the poultry processing plant directly into the pet food plant. And so if I needed to go run a run a test, then I would have to go collect the fresh warm offal, which was fantastic for pets, but uh, mm. not so good for a, a squeamish intern. <laughs> so I actually did a 180 degree turn uh, and started my PhD in food chemistry with a focus on fruits and vegetables, uh, basically anything but meat. Um, after I finished my PhD, I went to work for the USDA, uh, ARS, doing research for the peanut industry until one day I got a, a call from a recruiter that was re looking for, for someone to go into the pet food industry. Someone or somehow I was convinced to, to give it a shot and I've been working with Simmons ever since. And long story short, I've, I've never looked back and, and wouldn't regret it for a minute. Mm, excellent. Leah, how about you? Well, I'm the ancient one here at the table. I've been with the company or in the industry for over 22 years, uh, and I've loved it. I actually went into agricultural animal science as my bachelor's degree at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada, with the intention to go into veterinary medicine. But then in my third year of university, I really uh, was exposed to using food as medicine. I was My roommate was a, a student in naturopathic medicine, and she really opened my eyes. So I then pivoted and decided to go into graduate research of animal nutrition versus veterinary medicine. And I did that in collaboration with the Toronto Zoo, actually. So I started with exotic animal nutrition and then went into the field of pet food uh, when I was looking for a position that was not a research position, uh, something more permanent and full time, and ended up meeting with the individual who had my position today back then and asked who makes pet food. And uh, from there, next thing I knew, I had a job in the pet food industry and I swore I would stay two years and then I'd go back to research, back to the zoo, but I stayed and we're our own kind of zoo in itself. Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a fun industry and uh, and I can uh, very much uh, relate to uh, Phoebe's experience. I I too joined the pet food industry many years ago as a as an accident rather than as a desire, which which then prompts the, the the observation that there's not many food scientists who set their sights on joining the pet food industry after they graduate. So, I think we can safely say that it's a segment of the food industry that that's not well researched or understood by food science in general. And, and when you started in pet food. What was it that you found most surprising, something you, you didn't expect or, or think about before? So, uh, Leah, how about you can tell us about, you know, what did you stumble across that you didn't expect? Really to what you just said, how much food science plays a role in the creation and the manufacturing of pet food. I, I did not study any food science um, or pet food processing or processing in general during my education. Uh, today, there are many programs and courses between Kansas State, University of Illinois that offer courses and, and degrees as such as those. So when I came into the field, uh, really understanding just all the complexities, the synergies, how chemistry and, and food science really come together when you're putting a formula together, when you're cooking that formula, the reactions that happen during the cooking process, and then how the finished product is really impacted by all the decisions you make of the ingredients and combinations of ingredients 
And then not to mention the equipment and the pressures and stresses of processing, how they could impact your finished product as well. So it was a huge learning curve for me. I spent many, many years on the production floor, better understanding how plant builds the formula that I created in our formulation program. And that was really eye-opening for me. Right. And and given your background, Brittany, with, when you went out of pet food and into effectively back into fresh produce and anything away from meat, coming back into pet food, uh, tell me something that you learned that you didn't expect. Yeah, I would say, you know, coming from different backgrounds, I have a complete opposite experience uh, from Leah. For me, the most surprising thing was how much research and testing and consideration goes into the nutrition um, of a pet food and ensuring Mm. that it's complete and balanced for our pets. So honestly, as a food science, I'd never really considered the fact that, you know, dogs and cats receive all of their nutrition from a single diet in most cases. um, And this has to meet all of their nutrient requirements. And, and for all life stages too, not just today, you know, the nutrition comes out of this food for, for today, but it's all pets at all life stages. How do, how, do they, how do we go about the process of ensuring that the pet food is complete for all life stages? How is that done? Brittany, you want to follow up on that? Yeah, for sure. Um, So AFCO, the um, American Association for Feed Control Officials, uh, provides guidance uh, for us on uh, nutrient requirements for uh, for cats and dogs at different life stages. And so we follow that that guidance um, and make sure that the uh, that we're meeting the nutrients in our formulations that meet those requirements. And and Leo, having worked in a zoo environment, can you contrast for us how that's done for zoo food versus the pet food industry? Because it's very different in a zoo environment. There are so many species with so many uh, different nutrient requirements. And really working in the Animal Nutrition Center at the zoo uh, is is quite a... um, quite a scene because each animal has its own combination of different food items that meet their requirements, whether it's nutritional, physiological, even for food enrichment, for example. So there's a lot of research that goes into creating diets for zoo animals uh, because of the multitude of species. Mm -hmm. So, So Phoebe, what do you think consumers will be really surprised to learn about the foods that that they buy for their pets? Um, I think they, um, all the pet owner always pay a lot of attention to whether or not their pets enjoy the food. So a a ton of research actually goes into palatability research, which was the area that I uh, was focusing on in the past. And basically um, one of the things people might also surprise is like how we do it, because like this is not something often known and a lot of times like people I got always asked hey working pet food industry do you guys taste the food so I think that would be something really surprising to the consumer (laughs) that we actually don't taste it but like at the same time they probably expect it at the same time um so like coming I actually uh used to be in human food for a very short period of time so that was the first surprise actually coming in the pet food for myself. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, for human food, a lot of times people will pay money and try new foods like novelty foods. And even though it doesn't taste good, they will still try it. But animals are very different. So they wouldn't try it if it doesn't even smell good for them. So that's, that's 
something that I was really surprised. I guess like the animal can't read the the bag how much the tag is. At the same time, it's one of those things like consumer owners would be surprised what goes in, but then like they would they wouldn't be surprised when we explain to them. I'm gonna have to throw a curveball in there and say I always taste the food, so people are always surprised um, how I will taste. The- the, the prototypes we make and the different formats we make purely out of curiosity. Not all of us do. And it used to be a little bit of an initiation that we would do back 20 years ago. I don't think that'd be very well accepted today. But, you know, funny story, one of our customers, quite a big brand in the industry, back in the day, used to know that I would try the different foods and he'd say, hey, to the other product developer, maybe Mia can try it and see, can she taste the extra fish oil we've added or something like that? And I'm like, okay. I need to shut this down. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how is the process of, of the palatability testing actually done? Um, Brittany, do you want to start us off with that? Tell us about palatability testing in a pet food environment. How's it done? So we work with uh, with kennels and catteries that are uh, facilities that are designed to test pet food palatability. And so there's a couple of different methods that can be used to test that. One is just an acceptability. And so you'll you'll place the food in front of the uh, in front of the animal. Usually we'll use 20 to 40 animals and we'll feed them over over two to three days. So we get a good a good representation. But we'll present that food to them and then they'll measure how much the product that they consumed. And so it's strictly a, a consumption. Uh, some other options is you can give them two foods called a, a two bowl comparison. And so give them two different foods that are that are different. Either they're very different products, different brands, or they're different in that you've increased one ingredient over the other and you're trying to understand whether whether pets will tell a difference. And so you measure things like uh, first choice, which one did the did the um, animal choose first? And you'll measure total total consumption. How much did they consume of one over the other? How do you deal with the the say the dog that that rushes at their food and consumes the entire bowl and then then, then eats all the cat's food as well. It, it, I mean, we've all seen that experience. So so how do you deal with that? You've got a, your pet panels, a lot of fat cats and dogs. What's what? How does it work? So uh, these are, are trained panels. And so um, they're they're training these panels to, to be discriminative uh, of the foods. Um, they're also, you know, I'm assuming doing some testing beforehand. And if there's a, if there's a, an animal on that panel that uh, truly is, we'll just eat, we'll just eat anything, um, then they might be excluded uh, from that panel. So you want, you want animal, and it's not representative of a true home feeding experience. Um, you're really looking for a scientific approach uh, to this. And so there's a little bit of, of differences in, you know, the data we get out of a structured panel with trained, uh, trained panels, and then feedback we would actually get from from pet parents who who feed this product at home right and maybe i can go to you Lair, and and ask the 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 follow-up question there which is in in human food of course we can ask people about certain aspects of that food you know how salty it was how acidic it was how textural it was and and what i heard from Brittany just now was that it was all about volume and consumption and rejection and exception. So how do you get the nuance of adjustment of the formula rather than, you know, acceptance or rejectance? Thank you for asking that. Uh, It's really a huge initiative for us is really understanding um, ingredients, nutrients, and what, um, 
which of those attributes are are driving the palatability choices by either cats or dogs because both have very very different um, likes and dislikes and so we do a lot of research where we will test levels of sodium for example or we will test different liver sources or levels of protein and fat. We've learned a lot from our testing to better understand how to formulate so that we're not only formulating for complete and balanced nutrition, but also for the animal, not just nutritionally, but on a um, acceptability and then even physiologically. Uh, So when we create a product and and a great example would be creating a really nice chunky home-style stew, we want to think about the animal and what they would prefer. Cats are obligate carnivores. They're not going to want to eat chunky, large chunks of vegetables and and, and, um, ingredients such as those. Whereas dogs, we're not even sure if they chew the food, right? They just gulp it right down. Um, And so we've had a lot of great discussions with customers and brands when we're formulating diets, trying to describe uh, the animal's preferences so that we're not just thinking about the pet parent, when the pet parent's opening that bag, that cup, that can, that pouch, we're thinking about the animals so that the pet parent is not disappointed when the cat has left all the vegetables in the bowl and just ate the meat chunks and the gravy. Right. So, so when in the food, human food situation, there's some obviously research that would indicate that we eat first with our eyes. Well, how does that work in a pet food environment, and given that it's the pet owner that's really making the eye assessment of the food first? So how is it that we can get around the bias of the pet owner in, in the visuals of the food? Or alternatively, how do you go about building a pet food to appeal to the human visually, but the pet from an organoleptic point of view. So Brittany, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think we have this philosophical discussion internally, and we've probably had it many times, but you know, from a marketing perspective, you've, you've got to design a product and a package that sits on the shelf that's attractive to, to the pet parent, because if, if they don't buy it and they don't bring it home, then their pet's never going to get a chance to try it. But ultimately, that first feeding experience, you know, the the pet parrot can think it's a a great looking product. They can think that it smells and looks like something that they would eat. But if their pet doesn't eat it, then they're not going to buy it again. And so really, you have to consider both. You have to consider, you know, what is it going to take to convince the pet parent to, to actually purchase this product? And then, you know... First and foremost, you have to make sure that, the, you know, the pet's going to, to eat it, to like it, and it's going to deliver the right nutrition. Right. Phoebe, what, what's your experience been in, in adjusting the food to appeal to the visual characteristics or the visual cues that the pet owner has? Yeah, so um, during my process, like while I was formulating for treats, uh, even though it was not food, but uh, a lot of times like treats, you have a lot more forms, a lot more looks. Uh, So that's one of the things we are adding, like color as appeal to the pet parents, but uh, those probably are not something actually attracts the pets because pets are actually colorblind. So those are basically one example uh, being used for the pet food development. The other example being you you see a lot of packaging claims having like a barbecue flavor or like grill flavor, that kind of sense. So a lot of times those are more aromas for human 
to attract the consumers instead of the animals. Granted, it does contribute to the palatability. The animal might be attracting to the bowl in a lot more positive attraction. But then at the same time,、um, it might not contribute to the palatability or the consumption directly. So those are basically some examples we typically use between the consumer and the actual animal experience for the food. Right. So, so the animal feed segment as a whole has the perception that it, it's just a scavenger industry. It's a, it's a good way to use foods or byproducts of foods. That are not suitable for human consumption, and yet, if we look at the products that are produced, the consistency is extremely high, from you know,、uh, can to can, from pouch to pouch. So, in your experience, how does the pet food industry go about achieving that really high consistency of quality and reproducibility, yet? They're a scavenger industry, and they're they're basically using what they can. So, Lee, would you like to address that first? Absolutely, and I'm I'm so pleased that that's your perception of the high quality nature of the foods we produce, because there is a lot of intentional efforts going into producing our foods that are not only nutritious, complete in balance, safe, appealing to the pet parent and and to the pet. You know, I would even use the term the pet food industry. Historically, started out as more of a sustainable industry because we are using the parts of the animal that would not go into the human edible stream. So whether that's kidneys and lungs and and、uh, livers and hearts, and I'm a huge advocate of whole animal nutrition, nose to tail, however you want to call it, because I think that there's a really great balance you can achieve. If you include organ meats or other parts of the animal, and not just striated, deboned muscle meat, because for us as nutritionists and food scientists and product developers, a high-quality pet food doesn't mean unique, novel. You know, as I said, just striated meat. A high-quality food or a high-quality protein is really getting a great balance of amino acids that the animal needs, and that. Those amino acids are available to the animal, and so you can achieve that by using many parts of the animal or the bird, and then you know on top of that, adding all the vitamins and minerals and supplements you need, and and other ingredients that provide natural、uh, nutrition. So、uh, I think we see a lot more of that coming back because as we started going down the humanization phase. We started seeing ingredients coming into the pet food industry that maybe would not have been in the past, and taking us away from the sustainable nature of how the industry started. So, Phoebe, what what's been your experience? Because because I understand that your、uh, work within the pet food industry was more in snacks and treats, so you know a little bit different from main meal. Did you see a similar? Utilization of animal byproducts and and how if that was the case how did you see that your business achieved the consistency of product to product? So for the pets and、uh, the the treats aspect, a lot of times、um, I'm more working on the、uh, ext- extruded or expanding treats, 
And so in that situation, we don't use fresh meats uh, as starting material. A lot of times we will eat, use dry powder, but again, it might be dry liver powder or dry visceral powder to start with. So you still see a complete animal body parts going into the finished products. At the same time, we don't really use like a lot of like bone meals just because like for the injection molded treats, a lot of times it's a starch based products other than the uh, palatability aspects that we use liver powder. So it is slightly different than complete nutrition and diet. But at the same time, the pet's desire of animal components are definitely there. And then uh, like liver is actually knowing as one of the prominent component used in pet food industry, both to hold the palatability aspects, but also like what Leah said, basically is the waste stream from human industry, but we can use that to basically filling the gap. First of all, affordable for animal food, and then also uh, very palatable because it has a lot of amino acid profile to provide that animal really enjoy it. Right. And and you said something really interesting there, which I'm sure will uh, definitely uh, get the attention of many of our listeners, that you were using injection molding to produce food. Now, I'm, I, I doubt whether there's too many food producers out there, human food producers out there that are using injection molding to produce human food. So that kind of raises the question of the level of science that's employed to make pet foods. And my experience was that that it often exceeded that which is commonly utilized in a human food facility. And so what's your experience been of the scientific maturity of the pet food production environment? And can I ask you to tell us something about some of the more advanced processes that you've seen employed? Brittany, do you want to lead us off with that? Sure. Yeah, I'd say my, my head goes first to sort of our, our formulation software. We don't just put you know ingredients together and hope that it turns out to be complete and balanced nutrition uh, or deliver the nutrients that we desire. We actually have a formulation program that optimizes our formula based on analytical data and the restrictions that we provide it. So these restrictions are the nutrient requirements of the, the animal that we're feeding, uh, any other additional nutrient uh, requirements, omega-3s, omega-6s, et cetera. Um, we can put in an ingredient order, uh, certain ingredient minimums. For example, if something needs to be called chicken dinner, it needs to have 25% uh, chicken in that formula. So we would add that restriction. But once we've put all these restrictions in our software with a list of ingredients to choose from, we, you know, basically not to simplify it, but hit a button and let that software, you know, optimize the formula based on the ingredients and the restrictions that we've given them. And it's really based on, you know, a robust data set of our raw material data and not just the the targets, the nutrient targets that it delivers, but also what's that variability. So we have to enter standard deviations. And so once it gives us that final formula, we can generate confidence intervals that tell us, you know, within 95% confidence or 99% confidence, what what nutrient contents our finished product will, will provide, which is extremely important to us because we are guaranteeing these nutrients on a label. And if it falls outside of those ranges, then the, the product that, that we produce is, is not in compliance. And so I think that's some, probably something uh, different about the pet food industry that stands out in comparison to the, the food industry. Yeah. I mean, certainly from my experience, it was the uh, 
being thrown in the deep end of linear programming and doing do exactly what you just described at a fairly early age of my career was a was a fairly rude awakening that software is going to play an important part of my future. So that's software. So Leah, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've seen in terms of advanced manufacturing techniques that maybe wouldn't necessarily be fully adopted in across the, the, the human food industry? I think from our customers, our suppliers, our um, academia partners, we welcome all of them into our plants. And what I what I observe from all of them is how surprised they are on the advanced technology we use to create our pet foods, from the mixing and blending equipment, from the the preci- precision, forgive me, uh, that we put into adding each micronutrient into our formulations. Just the type of equipment to dice and cut and and size reduce ingredients or restructure and reform ingredients in manufacturing. And then just filling, you know, from the same sort of equipment that you would use to fill pouches of human food. We use that same equipment for pet food. And then the advancements that are customers and the industry is asking for on packaging. So it is it is um, really quite more advanced that I think many would believe when you walk into a manufacturing facility, and we're pretty proud of ours because we invest to ensure that we are using the best technology out there to give us not just high-speed manufacturing or what our consumers want, but at the same time ensuring food safety when it comes to the, the processing and packaging of our foods. How about you, Phoebe? What have you seen in terms of the more advanced processes that have been employed in pet food? Yeah, so uh, some of the uh, technologies I remember when I went to school uh, in, I would say that was like eight years ago. And during that time, we were trying to make product development for human product uh, competition um, using freeze-dried technology. And back then, it was very difficult because the cost was so high and it was not very widely used. It's slightly widely used now, uh, giving to some snacks, but it's still very expensive and not a whole lot of consumer are getting into that. But in pet food, more specifically, freeze-dried products is very, um, it, it is very well accepted by consumer. Uh, a lot of freeze-dried treats out on the market really have a lot of consumption by the animals and giving a really good feedback from the consumer. So those are some of the higher-end technology that actually widely adapted in the pet food industry. There are some more of like fresh food. Some some of the startup clients that I have actually goes direct to consumer. So the shelf life of the product or the freshness of the, the pet food is actually as par as the human consumption food. So those are basically what I think really keep the pet food industry in comparison to human even more advanced um, in some way or the other from a technology perspective. Hmm, interesting. So can I ask you to tell us a little bit about one of the most challenging things you've had to do from a food science perspective? So, so Brittany, can you tell us a little bit about what, what you've seen, one of the most challenging things you've had to do? For sure. I, I think just from a high level, just the, the fact the commercialization going from the bench top to the, the commercial plant is extremely challenging, but that's not unique to the, the pet food industry. 
I think specific to pet food, one of the things that, that comes to mind, and, and Leah can speak to this too, is we have to add vitamins and minerals to our to our products. And whether it's a kibble format or a, a wet pet food loaf or cuts and gravy format, typically we're adding those as part of a, a meat and grain mixture. And that's how we're delivering it uh, to the pet in the in the food format. One of our more recent innovations is being able to provide a complete and balanced product that uses only whole muscle meat. And since it's whole muscle meat, we can't we can't mix in the vitamins and minerals within that meat. And so the only way to deliver that is through the gravy. And so we had a challenge when we did that. It turned out to uh, to be a gray gravy, which was not very visually appealing. And so it was many years and hundreds and hundreds of tests for us to figure out how do we how do we deliver the vitamins and minerals in a gravy format and it not turn not turn gray or black? And so um, we finally found that right that right combination, the right mineral blends in order to do that. And so I think that's to my mind one of the most challenging projects that our team has has worked on in recent years. It's 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 such a uh proud moment for us because it's um, it was 290 prototypes that our scientists <laughs> created to make this happen. And it's not just about the color, but it's finding the right forms of vitamins and minerals that uh, not only create that finished product look that we were going for, but that are available to the animal long-term through the entire shelf life of that product, right? So it's on us at the same time as a challenge to us is how do we find the right sources, the right compounds that will maintain their concentration right through to the end of shelf life. And that could be two or three years if it's a can or, or a cup or a tub, and then you know a, a year to 18 months in a bag. So that's a huge challenge for us. Right. So can I ask you to tell us a little bit about where you think the future of the pet food industry and pet food products are going? And you've talked a little bit about the new product that you've been working on. So what exciting other new products do you think we will see in the future? Leah, do you, do you, you want to pick that up? You know, I think we're coming full circle. You know, we started, as I said previously, more of a sustainable industry using all parts of the animal um, multiple uh, sources of grains and ingredients and fruits and vegetables and so on. Then we went through the premiumization, humanization phase, and we're still in there. And that's that's not a trend. I think that's here to stay. Where we started really putting a lot of guardrails on on our formulations. At the same time, I think we're thinking a lot more about our earth, our water, sustainability, how how the animals were raised. So farming practices, sources, where did the ingredients come from? Where did the meats come from? Right down to not just the the, the broker you buy from, but the original supplier, source, country, factory, etc. So I think we're coming back to basics on, on not only whole animal nutrition, but more sustainable practices, thinking about as I said, our waters, our, our earth, and then long term, how do we continue to not just feed the world's population in, in 2050, but how do we continue to eat, um, feed our, our pets as well? So I think we're going to see the humanization trend to stay, but really incorporating some of that basic pet food legacy approach. Right. So, so as we finish up here today, I'd like to ask each of you in turn, what is it that you would want other food scientists to know about 
how it's like to work in this industry, how exciting it is, how challenging it is, anything you want to tell us, tell other food scientists that you don't think they'd be aware of about working in, the, in uh, pet food. So Phoebe, how about you lead us off? Tell us about what you think other food scientists should really know about working in pet food. Yeah, so being in the pet, in- pet food industry accidentally and stays, I have to say this is a group of people who truly care about animals and who tr- stays as a community. There's a saying that who comes in the pet food never leaves. And I think it's really true because we constantly see seeing the same face over and over and we see each other in different shows and different events. And then we crack the code for animal well-being all together. And I think it's a very exciting arena just as how you study the animal nutrition or for people who love animal already or people who want to go to school for food science. Uh, this is an exciting arena to explore because it can buy all your previous learned knowledge into use to actually for the better well-being for the animals. And then you can see a lot of more uh, advanced technologies as we mentioned earlier as well. So you won't feel less challenged as you work in anim- uh, human food, if not just more challenge actually and more exciting rewards. How about you, Brittany? Tell us about what you would like other food scientists to be aware of in uh, working in pet food. For sure. I'd completely agree with the, with what Phoebe said. Um, if you love animals and you haven't considered a career uh, in the pet food industry, you should. It's fun. It's challenging. It's growing. But I think on a, you know practically, if you're an ingredient supplier or a packaging supplier or equipment manufacturer and you haven't considered you know, whether your products would fit into the, the pet food industry, you may be missing out on a, on a really big opportunity uh, because we use some of the same technology, same ingredients in pet food industry uh, as you would in, in human foods. Right. And Leah, what, what insights would you give other food scientists? I think if you're, you're curious, you're creative, um, you're up for a challenge, this is the industry. If you have a love for animals, a love for pets and want to put your efforts into doing better by them. Um, there's, there's a lot of opportunities in our industry. It's complex, bringing it all together from nutrition, food science, uh, palatability, digestibility, shelf life stability. I mean, all the research that goes into this um, is no small task. And I think if you're up for that challenge, it's a great industry to be part of. And of course, if you love pets, this is where you want to be. Excellent. Thank you all for your time and your insights today, Phoebe, Brittany, and Leah. And look, I've really enjoyed learning from you and hearing about your wonderful experiences. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you. So thanks also to our listeners. If you're enjoying the Side Dish, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you source your podcast or by connecting with us on IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and or LinkedIn. For more on this subject, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject that you're interested in into the search box, and that will give you a ton of other resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish today. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone.